0: These things are possible, but only if we, if we become, as I like to say, wise managers of evolutionary processes. Evolution will take place, and if we don't manage it, it will take us where we don't want to go. I promise you that.
1: Uh, What's up, everyone? Uh, This is the Optimal Tribe Podcast. My name is Michael Davis, and today my guest is David Sloan Wilson. Dr. Wilson is an evolutionary biologist and a distinguished professor of biological sciences and anthropology at Binghamton University. He is also a co founder of the Evolution Institute and the author of several books, including the one we'll be discussing today, which is This View of Life Completing the Darwinian Revolution. Dr. Wilson, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Okay, so this view of life is uh, pretty broad in scope in that it proposes that evolutionary theory is required to solve the problems of, of our age, but what really interested me in this book is that you talk about how humans evolved in groups, whether at the global level or at the small groups level, which is, would obviously include small teams in the workplace, which is what I like to focus on here at Optimal Tribe. And you propose a concept called multi-level selection to explain human evolution. So start us off with an over- overview of that concept and the impact it's had on us as humans.
0: Sure. Well, um, it goes all the way back to Darwin. And at first, Darwin thought that his theory could explain examples uh, that had been attributed to a creator. Uh, but he, soon enough, he realized that uh, that wasn't true, that there's a very important class of traits namely pro behaviors, traits that are basically for the benefit of others or one's group as a whole, that he could not explain for a reason that is pretty simple to understand. If I do nice things to you, I'm helping you survive and reproduce at my expense. And so that's the opposite of what should evolve. So his theory could explain selfishness well, but altruism and everything else we associate with uh, uh, working for the benefit of others uh, could not explain that. And so in order to find the positive effect of these behaviors, he had to go up in scale. What he realized was is that although the altruist is less fit than the selfish individual within a single group, groups of altruists would robustly survive and reproduce better than other. Groups And so if natural selection operates at the group level, then we can explain everything that's for the good of the group. Uh, But those very same behaviors are selectively disadvantageous within groups. And so that leads to a mantra that I'm uh, coined with the other Wilson, Edward O. Wilson, selfishness beats altruism within groups, altruistic groups beat selfish groups. Everything else is commentary. So there is a multi-level selection in a um, a nutshell. But uh, let me actually continue, because I have a nifty way to make it uh, uh, really clear to just about anyone uh, by asking them to think of the game of monopoly. So in monopoly, it's all about within group competition. You're trying to own all the real estate and drive everyone else in your group bankrupt. So imagine playing that game. And then imagine playing a different game, a Monopoly tournament, in which the trophy goes to the team that collectively develops their properties the fastest. So imagine playing that game, and you'll agree, I think, that every decision you make would be different than playing the single game of Monopoly. So that's the difference between a competitive process that takes place within groups, like the single game of Monopoly, and a competitive process that takes place between groups, such as a Monopoly tournament. So there is an easy way to think about multi-level selection.
1: Yeah, and that's really important in in today's world because, uh, you know, you want to apply it to... Uh, all the problems of of this world and, and to society, but there's still a sticking point with a lot of people when they think about evolution, they think about uh, you know survival of the fittest, dog eat dog, and it's really not it's really not just about that. And you've done a chapter in your book really trying to overcome that myth of how evolutionary thought is is bad
0: for society. Yeah, totally. So read my book, please read my book, and then and then all will be revealed. <laughs> all right, so one of the dynamics you talk
1: about with groups is that, uh, so the, the more external pressure on a group, the greater uh, uh, pressure it is to be more cooperative, whereas the greater pressure within the group, that brings out the more selfish traits. Do, do I have that generally right?
0: Uh, roughly,
1: yeah. Okay. So thinking about that in the workplace, if you have a group in the workplace, you have a team and you're trying to develop group cohesion, uh, would, you, would you try to emulate or simulate some external pressures to try to uh, make that cohesion or, or would, is that to be unethical <laughs> or uh, how, how, you know, how, how could you use that to, uh, to the benefit of the team?
0: Well, it wouldn't be unethical. Uh, Well, I mean, it it doesn't need to be unethical. Let me tell you a story from the business world. It's actually, I cover it in my book, but it's one of my favorite uh, stories. And it involves a uh, consultant who was uh, consulting with an oil refinery at a time when there was a wildcat strike. And so he was present when the mid-managers, several hundred of them, had to run a factory that was a refinery that was typically run by several thousand people. And do you know they did it well for a period of months, and they had some kind of peak psychological experience doing it. And so uh, the consultant was amazed. And he thought, how can I make this work on an average day? And so he created something called Rapid Results. You could look it up. And that involved creating small teams. So now we're getting to teams. And tasking them with a really challenging task, something that was, you know, um, super ambitious, like doubling the sales of a product line or or something like that. Uh, Compose a small group, make it the right people, including the right mix of people, not just the bosses, but the, you know, the frontline people that are actually involved in the, uh, in the activity, uh, cut the red tape, uh, let them go at it, and then give them lots of recognition if they if they succeed. And so these groups sprung to life, just like the emergency situation, and had some kind of peak experience doing it. Now you can't do it again and again; it would be too. Ex- this became actually a method that he began to develop. Where a company could set up these rapid results teams, and uh, and use it as the actually the main change agent for the uh, for the company. So there you have, I think, a, a, a niche construction. Uh, uh, you know, designing your company to harness this kind of small group power of small groups, uh, and. I mean, small groups are everywhere in business. So, so uh, businesses know in some sense that, uh, that small groups are, are, are kind of an efficacious uh, unit, even if they don't um, know, you know exactly how to design it or, or, or so on, which we can be getting to.
1: So I'd imagine you need a certain degree of psychological safety with that. Like you can't say, hey, you, you need to double your quota or, or else I wouldn't work as well if you were going that approach.
0: That's a good uh, really good point about the uh, about psychological uh, safety. Uh, let me just uh, try to try to pause to do a good job with that. Uh, yeah, if you make it threatening, then uh, it's very likely not going to work. And there are some company practices like uh, rank and Yank, where you rank employees. And you just routinely fire the bottom of the distribution and hire more. And that breeds not just distrust, but all kinds of cheating. People do anything to keep their jobs at that point, including not cooperate with their with their, uh, co-workers. So there has to be some sense in which uh, things are at stake, but typically it should be like, you know, rewards if you succeed, uh, rather than something draconian if you if you fail. And within the group, uh, there has to be a sense... Of uh, of uh, collective uh, safety and and benefits. So we succeed or fail as a group. If there's like uh, cost and benefits meted out within the group, then you set up an unhealthy competition. A point about all of this is that it's not the case that like cooperation is always bad or good. There's healthy and unhealthy forms of of uh, of uh, competition. We need to make sure that competition is uh, takes the healthy forms.
1: Very good. Now, in your book, you talk uh, you talk about Eleanor Ostrom. If I think I'm saying that right, uh, but she studied groups uh, groups concerned with a shared uh, common resource pool. But you worked with her. Uh, actually, got you guys wrote an article together. About the uh, that gave it a little more evolutionary underpinnings of of her ideas, but what she had developed or what she had uh, discovered were these core design principles that really help groups. Can you take us through those core design principles? Yeah, they're,
0: they're super foundational. And uh, a little bit about uh, Eleanor, she was a political scientist by training, and she studied the tragedy of the commons, the tendency of of uh, groups that draw upon. Uh, natural resources to overexploit their their uh, resources, and uh, she uh, and she won the Nobel Prize in economics, which is amazing. At that time, she was like unknown to most economists. <laughs> so, there is something paradigmatic here. I want I want to get across. I mean, the economics profession, which has been hugely influential in the to the business world, has been dominated for the last over half a century by um, rational choice theory, homo economicus. um, And uh, it's against that background that Eleanor Ostrom's work is so revolutionary and paradigmatic. So, uh, So what she discovered by actually studying common pool, resource groups was that, in the first place, they varied in how well they functioned. This is super important. It's not the case that these groups always managed, avoided the tragedy of the commons. Only some did. And those were the ones implemented these core design principles, which Eleanor derived and which earned her the Nobel Prize, that groups can manage their own affairs, basically. And so uh, now I'll list them. And um, there's eight, and they're so simple. So uh, the groups that that functioned well first had a strong sense of identity and purpose. Knew that they were a group. Knew what the boundaries of the resource were. They knew who could who the members of the group were. They could draw upon the resource. And of course, the whole thing was important. It was their their livelihood. So a strong sense of identity and purpose. Number two, fair distribution of costs and benefits. Not sustainable if some members of the group get all the benefits and others support the costs. Needs to be that what you get from the group is proportionate to what you give. Number three, um, fair and equitable decision-making. Not sustainable if some members of the group get to call the shots, others are not part of that process. There's two problems with that. One is you're not making use of the wisdom of everyone in the the group. Two, it's a recipe for unfairness. Uh, Four, um, monitoring agreed upon behaviors. Uh, The group has to be transparent enough so that you know whether somebody is doing what they're supposed to do. Five, graduated sanctions. If somebody's not doing what they should, then something needs to be done about it, but it doesn't have to start out harsh. A friendly reminder is typically uh, sufficient, yet there must be a way to escalate. And while we're at it, let's make sure that we reward good behavior at the same time that we punish bad behavior. Number six, fast and fair conflict resolution. Conflicts will occur And they must be resolved quickly in a manner that's regarded as fair by all parties. In a dispute, most people think that they have a point of view. Number seven, local autonomy. A group must have elbow room to do these other things. And if they're being bossed around from the outside, then all bets are off. And number eight, appropriate relations with other groups. And here is a very important point. Those relations with other groups involved the same core design principles as the relations within groups. So those core design principles are scale independent. They're needed to govern relations among groups just as much as relations among individuals within groups. And so those were the eight core design principles that showed uh, that worked for a certain kind of group, common pool of resource groups. And what I did with her was we generalized them And I think your listeners can see just with the little introduction I gave to multi level selection that if you imagine a group that strongly implements those core design principles, and if you imagine someone trying to play the single game of monopoly within that group, it won't go well for them. The group is protected against disruptive, self serving. If you're a a cooperator in such a group, you can feel very safe, back to safety, that you can extend yourself and you won't be exploited because of those core design principles. But if you imagine a group that doesn't implement those core design principles, it'll be easy picking for somebody who wants to play the single game of Monopoly and a cooperator seeing that is likely to withhold their cooperation. And so, and, and isn't that going to hold for any kind of group? That's not restricted to um, any particular kind of group. So, these core design principles are golden for any kind of group, and, uh, and not least business groups. And we've done research on that that we can get to later on, but I'll pause and give you a chance to comment on that.
1: Yeah, well, I was just gonna ask you if you could maybe give an example of a group that took one or more of those principles and and applied them so it's a little more tangible for people to understand.
0: Uh, sure. <laughs> um, I can draw upon Eleanor's work, uh, maybe still. Uh, one of our favorite examples involved the lobster gangs of Maine. So in the state of Maine, um, at least in the old days, Every bay was owned by a gang of um, lobstermen. Only they could fish in the bay. And those colorful bowies that uh, Maine is famous for actually have a function. They identify the individual lobstermen. So the lobstermen know by just looking at the bowies uh, who's fishing it. There's your monitoring. And if some interloper comes and sets their buoys, they know right away, what do they do? And uh, Lynn loved to tell this story. She said, these big, burly lobstermen tie a bow around the buoys. Mm-hmm. Just a bow. And so there's your graduated sanctions. It's just like, we see you <laughs> and then. And you know what will happen if the person doesn't get out of there. That's the escalation Part so that's one uh, wonderful example, and there were uh, were many more. Now, if you look in the business world for examples of this, so we can get to that. And I know that you want to talk about agile. Um, and uh, I think one thing you can say about the business world is that just like any other kind of group, they're going to vary in how well they function and from the best to the worst. And our prediction is, is that it will be for the same reasons, that if you look at the high-performing they have converged upon these core design principles, otherwise they wouldn't function well. They might not know that I have, or they might think about it in, you know, certain terms and, and, uh, and vocabularies. And so, um, I mean, the example that I've already given of... Uh, of this uh, rapid results method is one that they, you know, happened upon this, uh, this formula, basically. So,
1: yeah, you brought up Agile. So let's, let's talk about that. Um, Agile has 12 principles. Uh, now you talk about uh, what is it alternate uh, design principles or ADPs? Um, Would you consider the agile principles to be those, or are they more in line with the the core design principles?
0: Well, I I want to rely upon you to go through them. Let's go through them. But first, let me uh, articulate the concept of auxiliary design uh, principles. Uh, The reason that the core design principles are called core is that they're necessary for cooperation in all their forms. And every group, if they're trying to get something done, must cooperate. So that's why the core design principles are called core. But any particular group is going to need additional design principles to do whatever they do. Those are are principles that are needed by some groups, but not others. And for the groups that need them, the auxiliary principles are as uh, important as the core design uh, principles. Uh, An example I like to give is turnover. Some groups have a lot of turnover of their members. I, I'm a professor, so in college, any group of students is going to have just a ton of turnover. And if you're not designed to for your group to uh, persist in the face of high turnover, well, you must. That's an auxiliary core, uh, an auxiliary design principle. Now, with the principles of uh, Agile, which were, I hope they're, you're in a position to list,
1: I, I imagine that...
0: I think uh, a lot of them are going to map onto the core because they're needed by most troops. So let's go through them. See what's. Okay, I'll
1: I'll list them off, and I'll list them off one by one, and you can comment after each one. How's that? Yeah. Okay. All right. Number one, uh, our highest priority is to satisfy the customer through early and continuous delivery of valuable software.
0: Okay. Well, that's the purpose of the group. That's like CDP one. What's this group about? So that's defining the purpose of the group. Okay. All right.
1: Number two is welcome changing requirements, even late in development. Agile processes harness change for the customer's competitive advantage.
0: Ah, uh, no, that's interesting. Uh, that actually is about adaptability. Hmm. And with software development, because um, Agile is somewhat specific to software development. At mm-hmm. least that's where it originated, right? Yep. And so there you have to be nimble and you have to change and things like that. Contrast that with the Common Full Resource Group, like a, the Lobster Fisherman of Maine. You know, it's the same damn thing year after year. I mean, it's not, it's not as if you have to innovate. Um, and, so, uh, and so number two has to do with uh, adaptability. And I'm eager to get to that, but I, there's, there's an auxiliary. Okay. For groups that that have to be, you know, really adaptable. All
1: right. Number three is deliver working software frequently from a couple of weeks to a couple of months with a preference to the shorter time scale.
0: Okay. There again, we're talking about like a hyper adaptable uh, system. It's got to turn stuff out. So that's quite specific to to uh to this we're, we're basically an auxiliary territory we're not talking about just like how any group what any group mm. needs to do to cooperate we're talking about a, a, a group dedicated to a certain thing of development basically so it's all about um um uh, adaptability
1: well, every group has to adapt just not as quickly as agile so yeah that's okay, right okay that's right all right, number four. Uh, business people and developers must work together daily throughout the project.
0: Yeah, right. That's like saying we have to cooperate. I mean, that's kind of generic. Yeah. So I would say that that doesn't really touch upon. I mean, the, the core design principles are quite a bit more specific than that. It goes without saying that that a uh, group has to cooperate, so I'm not even sure why that has to be said. So let's, let's keep on going.
1: Now, well, let me ask you this. What... Um, I mean, what do you think about remote work? I mean, as humans, we're kind of built to work kind of face-to-face, face-to-face, but are we, do we lose something by working remote or do you think it's worth the benefits from working remote? What are your thoughts on remote work?
0: Well, I mean, it's somewhat of a different question. I think uh, we should probably defer that question until we get through the nine principles. Why don't we just do that? Let's zip through the nine principles.
1: Let's do that. All right, Uh, number five, I think we're on. Uh, Build projects around motivated individuals, give them the environment and support they need and trust them to get the job done.
0: Well, that maps quite a bit onto local autonomy, doesn't it? So, Mm -hmm. um, So basically elbow room. So uh, there's a nice mapping onto CDP seven.
1: Number six, the most efficient and effective method of conveying information to and within a development team is face-to-face conversation.
0: So again, uh, that doesn't—I mean, that's a good point. That uh, and it brings us back to what you say about remote. So I would say, I would say, first of all, true, and that's not covered by the core design. Principles, of course, that's a newfangled something. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, for you know, most groups throughout history, including um, common pool resource groups, there was a given that the, that the interactions would be face to face. There was no, there was no alternative. Yeah. Uh, so this is making the point that there's something all all else equal uh, preferable about face to face interactions. I would say that's true, and that there's. Um, Um, Definitely an evolutionary rationale for it. And yet there might be countervailing factors which would cause remote interactions to be better. And so uh, we can return to that. So let's keep going. All right. Number seven, working software is the primary measure of progress. Okay, well, that's another that's quite specific to the Absolutely. context of the
1: group. Yeah. Okay. Uh, number eight agile processes promote sustainable development. The sponsors, developers, and users should be able to maintain a constant pace indefinitely.
0: Okay, well, that's some kind of continuous improvement uh, clause, again, having to do with like change progress. Um, and I think it bears a uh, comment that how. Modern life and its uh, necessity for for change, especially in a business environment that 's pretty unnatural actually. I think that um, throughout human history, the pace of life was much much slower than that. you know I mean the past generation was much like the the present generation was much like the past, and so the once you adapt to an environment it 's a matter of of um, of more or less doing the same thing and you always need to have that structure to prevent cheating and, and uh, um, exploitation within groups and so on. That's, that's constant too. But the idea that, you know, you have to adapt to some new thing on, you know, so fast on on a daily, daily basis. A group can be structured that way and we're very malleable us humans. So, but it's not natural in the sense of what we evolved to do in any genetic sense, our evolved psychology, you know, as soon as we kind of enter evolutionary psychology territory, then uh, we're really in, in um, not in the good old EEA, the environment of evolutionary um, adapted, not even culturally. I mean, uh, culturally, 100 years ago, 200 before the Industrial Revolution, nothing like this. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Well, I think what number eight is addressing is the tendency for projects to, um, for everybody to get slammed near, when it gets near the deadline of a project, everybody's slammed, everybody has to work overtime, everybody's stressed. And so that constant pace, they're trying to flatten that out. Um, and I mean, you would agree that it's not healthy for a group to be going through, you know, times of stress like that to have an even kill pace, even if it is fast, um, you know, something that's not going to burn everyone out.
0: Yeah, but on the other hand, there's this, the concept of sprints. Isn't the concept of sprints part of agile?
1: Uh, well, it was part of Scrum. Well, that's, that's a whole other conversation. But yeah, sprints are uh, within the agile framework, Yeah.
0: yeah. I mean, the idea that we work real hard and then we reach a stopping point and we take stock and then we work real hard again and maybe actually assign different people so that if, 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 to avoid burnout, then, uh, you can, uh, you can have, uh, sprints going on all the time, as long as different people are engaged in the, in the sprint. So I don't think that really, uh, continuous, strictly speaking continuous progress is is required. It can be a series of sprints, but, uh, but, uh, apart from that, Obviously you don't want to leave everything to the end and then go into panic mode. That's true.
1: (laughs) All right. Number nine, uh, continuous attention to technical excellence and good design enhances agility.
0: Yeah. Okay. So, uh, that's more like CDP one, what we're trying to do. And, and, uh, that that was quite interesting for us to do that. Uh, Michael, the, uh, Uh, And we see that there's actually only some overlap. Uh, Mm -hmm. Those nine principles of Agile actually don't address quite a few. uh, We got three. We got three more to go here. Oh, okay, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Premature. All
1: right. Uh, Number ten: simplicity. The art of maximizing the amount of work not done is essential.
0: Okay. Uh, All right. I don't think that's covered by the. uh, Core design principles. That's more. I mean, this is very heavily weighted towards development, and that's one reason for the for the uh, non-overlap. These are highly specialized groups that are mm-hmm. that are, uh, are creating things, and they're That's I think a that's a good that's a great candidate for an auxiliary design principle.
1: Number eleven: The best architect requirements and designs emerge from self-organizing teams.
0: Right, more auxiliary, but uh, if you want, we can talk about uh, the concept of self-organization Yeah. um, and what that that really means.
1: Does that go in line with autonomous groups, or is that something different?
0: I mean, it's certainly consistent with it. Self-organizing means that uh, basically, yeah, mean, say yes, for sure. Um, But uh, when you unpack what self-organizing means, uh, there's so much structure in self-organizing. Mm. I mean, I mean, is there a goal everyone's working towards? Y- yes. Um, is uh, uh, you know, we we could go on, but uh, I'd uh, um, and it's important because uh, I think that for any goal, there has to be, and especially if it's complex, in other words, systemic, then. Uh, you have to have the, the systemic goal in mind and be working directly towards it. In evolutionary terms, there has to be a target of selection and some software development target. Just imagine it, what it might be, some piece of, of software development. Uh, so that's the target of selection. Then you have to orient variation around the target. Uh, it's not just anything. You can't just do anything. You have to do things that are maybe going to, Solve that problem. Then you have to identify the ones that work best. You have to replicate it, sensitive to context. That's the only way it's going to get done. Well, what the hell is self-organizing about that? That's so structured. Mm-hmm. And the idea that there's just things just kind of bubble up and work at the at the systemic level—that never happens. So, I, as you can see, I feel strong. The term (laughs) self-organizing. That's part of multi-level selection is that that, uh, at the group level or at the systemic level, there is no functional organization without a product of selection. You're never going to get a system that functions well if you're not selecting at the systemic level. It's the opposite of the invisible hand. The invisible hand pretends that we can just do our things and then we'll be led as if by an invisible hand to benefit the common good. Well, no. The answer to that is no.
1: Yes, I, I, I've heard you talk very passionately about, about that before. <laughs> um, and uh, I just—you just got me thinking about um, Mark Van uh, Viet's, uh book on leadership. And you know, as humans, as much as we try to have a, a leaderless group, we, we tend to promote somebody to leader is that is that is that the dynamic we, we usually deal with in groups
0: yeah well let's dwell a little bit on that and mark van Voigt, uh, who is one of our great colleagues studying business management from an evolutionary uh, perspective uh, he makes or a distinction can be made between two kinds of status and and dominance uh, or high, high social status. One is the kind of status that's taken by powerful people. It's just domination. The other is earned by reputation. Uh, status is, is granted. The way you get a good reputation is you do things that are good for others. And then they bestow a good reputation upon you. And it's the reputational variety of status that is good for the group. The dominance variety is very seldom for the good of the uh, uh, group, so that's a a very important point to make. And the whole difference between our species and and all of the most other primate species, including our closest relatives, is that very difference. Is that chimp society, to a somewhat lesser extent, bonobo society, is of the dominance variety, just despotism? Okay. We never want to live in those groups. The amount of just physical violence, just sheer physical violence in a chimp community is over a hundred times greater than in a small-scale human society. That's how big the difference is, and the and the degree of cooperation that takes place in a chimp community is so small compared to what takes place in a uh, Human community. The reason that we are the species we are is because we have to earn our status for the most part. Always for the most part. There's always the danger of domineering individuals taking over or using more subtle strategies in order to take over. That's an ever-present, um, ever-present danger. Now, the final thing that needs to be said, though, is that. Uh, Some situations call for leadership of the reputational variety, but other situations actually call for something that's more diffuse in which there's no leaders at all. I mean, basically the the, the work of the group is distributed amongst its members so evenly that you don't really recognize a leader. And and I mean, uh, uh, hunter-gatherer societies are famously leaderless societies, when they were contacted by Europeans, they said, take me to your leader, they said, what? Uh, (laughs) I mean, so, so, uh, uh, so interesting. And I think that's very true in in business groups. You have some kind of flat hierarchy, social organizations, which emulate that, and often do quite well. Mm -hmm. So it's not the case that there has to be a manager even of the, uh, even of the uh, reputational uh, variety. And if there is a manager, that manager should think of him or herself as a node in a social process, a node in a social process. And there needs to be a lot of bottom-up control. There has to be a lot of feedback from the so-called subordinates as to how the so-called leader is doing real accountability, bottom-up accountability, and including to, in, in addition to top-down accountability. All right. Well, we've got one more agile
1: principle here. Number 12 <laughs> at uh, regular intervals, the team reflects on how to become more effective, then tunes and adjust its behavior accordingly. So again, the adaptability
0: aspect. Yeah. Adaptability all about adaptability. And of course mm. that's good advice is that, um, and, uh, and I think that um, I have a series of articles coming out. It's actually a series of conversations coming out in uh, my online magazine, This View of Life, same title as my book. And it's a, a series of conversations funded by the Kauffman Foundation. And you might know that the Kauffman Foundation, the Ewing Marion Kauffman Foundation, based in Kansas City, is uh, dedicated to entrepreneurship. And this series of articles is titled uh, Evolution, Complexity, and the Third Way of entrepreneurship, please let me out here because uh, it's, it's central to your business, is that uh, when it comes to entrepreneurship or any other kind of social change, positive social change, there's two things that don't work and only one thing that does work. Uh, one thing that doesn't work is laissez-faire, so it's not the case that we can all pursue our lower-level interest, individuals maximizing their utility corporations maximizing their short-term profits and that that will work out for the common good. It's just not true. Uh, The other thing that doesn't work is centralized planning. Why? Because the world is too complex to be comprehended by any group of experts. And that holds as true for a top-down command and control corporation as it does for a socialist nation. So so, uh, that doesn't work. So what does work? Only a managed process of cultural evolution. Only a process in which the three ingredients of selection, the target of selection, variation around the target, and the replication of best practices is managed at a systemic uh, scale. So returning to your final uh, agile principle, that's what it's basically saying is we do stuff and we take stock. We do stuff and we take stock. Variation selection, variation And selection. That's a managed process of cultural evolution, which is embodied, I think, in actually quite a few of those Agile uh, uh, principles. So I I notice in Agile, a lot
1: of the Agile frameworks that uh, there's a lot of whiteboards and post-it notes and in helping the, you know, us as humans track, not just the workflow, but, uh, decisions and time. And it's like, um, it's, it's like, you know, I've, I've heard, you know, we, we're, we're good at throwing a football because we had to throw spears at moving objects. Is there an, an analogous, uh, relation to post-it notes? Like, how did we get by without post-it notes before? Or what is that helping the human <laughs> brain do?
0: Well, there's was an interesting question. Uh, so post-it notes are, what are they? They're just like nominations. They're alternatives. They're just like things that we stick up on the board and then we compare them with other things. Is that? They're what symbolic, are- right?
1: They'd be symbolic of the you know, tasks that need to be done or when tasks were done. Uh, so I guess you know they're a lot of symbolic in nature.
0: Well, I mean, if you if you were to do an experiment with teams of any sort, including agile teams, and allow one set to use post-it notes and others you prohibit them from using post-it notes, what do you think the difference would be? What are the what's the what's the added value of? Post-it notes. I'm guessing that without post-it notes, there'd be like, you know, a lot of conversation. People would be saying the kind of thing they put down in post-it notes. They'd be remembering them with post-it notes. You don't have to remember them so, so much. And that's an interesting point, because um, um, back in the day before, uh, written language, everything known had to be remembered and recited. I mean, it was like the constraints on human thought before the ability to download information was so great that the way people thought, given those constraints, would be almost unrecognizable to us. There's good research on this. So great were the constraints on that the a lot of the way that we think that's analytical is so reliant on that, that those forms of thought didn't exist at all beforehand. So it was revolutionary to be able to download uh, information in that way. And the human mind is sufficiently flexible that it could adapt to that basically exploit those opportunities. We see that all the time with the apps and so on, like the map apps would be the perfect perfect example. Before those map apps, we had to read maps. And even more, we had to actually internalize maps in our head, which our brains are pretty good at at, at doing when you think of the navigational feats of, of native people, you know, uh, Micronesian sailors sailing between islands that are invisible. Uh, you know, in the the distance, how did they do that? Uh, But now with our calculators and our map apps and so on, we very quickly uh, seed the ability to do that and become like helpless in our own minds. And you can actually think of post-it notes as is like that this kind of memory aid so we can put it on a post-it note therefore we don't have to remember it and we're perfectly happy to take that opportunity our minds are not so genetically structured as the evolutionary psychologists think this is actually quite a departure from doctrinaire evolutionary psychology thinking as you know because you've become interested in evolutionary psychology you know the Cosmetic Society says that we have, you know, many modules that evolved by genetic evolution and those get triggered in the modern environment. Stone Age modules get triggered in the um, modern environment. And that can be true to a degree, but for the most part, the human mind is more malleable than that. So if you do something radical, like make it possible to download information, then the human mind is malleable to take advantage of, of of that and then it becomes something that never existed in the past so i mean it's very different than than the um uh, than the typical evolutionary psychology account where you kind of imagine the mind is entirely a product of genetic evolution and all the environment does is like you know push the buttons of a jukebox or something like something like that which again does take place to a degree but there's also this malleable part that we have to uh, that we have to consider. So you're saying, are you saying not to use? Are we better off not using post notes? Well, I mean, people like post-it notes. At least some do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if we did, and if we did, and uh, back to my experiment, uh, my guess is that there'd be like a minor difference. But it's not as if post-it notes are like revolutionary. Or, or well, anything. I mean, it's, I think a group could conduct their business without post-it notes. Many do.
1: But it seems like the groups have a harder time seeing the big picture without visual aids like that, and I'm just not sure why that why that is. I mean, they can't if they're not aware of something, if they're not aware of the big picture, and, and can't catch the, something wrong in the big picture, then they can't really talk about it. And uh, you know, it just seems oh, okay. like,
0: yeah, okay. Well, yeah. So that's 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 a great point. That's a great point. But then, if you think about what the counterpart of that is before post-it notes. Well, there's all kinds of visual aids. I mean, think of how people, I mean art, we're talking about art. We're talking about decorating objects and and the like, and ritual and 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 music. And and so it's really quite interesting that uh that um all of these things that we associate with the arts and which kind of superficially lack function, uh, lack utility. A bowl has an obvious utility. The decorations on a bowl, you know, doesn't have obvious utility. But think a little harder, look a little harder, and you'll find that, that uh, these things actually do have enormous utility in orchestrating uh, the uh, activities and thoughts of the uh of the um, of the group so there's some very interesting connections to be made there
1: well uh, is there do you know of any resources that would kind of dive into that or any books or anything like that
0: yeah there's a small literature um on the arts from an evolutionary uh perspective music for example dancing moving together uh in time music as a kind of a way of setting the context of a group i mean just think of music genres of music funeral music military music romantic music work songs uh, 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 which are typically come out in a given context. And so it really becomes like a group coordination mechanism and a group bonding mechanism. Quite a few experiments that show when people sing together and then you have them play like a prisoner's dilemma game or 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 uh, something like that, then they cooperate more. And the act of moving together, dancing, which uh, historically has is, is been only a little bit about like romantic couples. That's the way we think of it now. But uh, for the most part, dance in the past was a group affair. Uh, you know, think of Indians dancing around a campfire and stuff like uh, think like that, or think of military drill that kind of uh, uh, that kind of thing, which really bonds you to the uh, to the uh, uh, to the group. And there we see some business practices, some that have uh, you know think of what businesses do to. Bond their their members that um, in terms of uh you know uniforms and company hats and memorabilia and and their treats and and uh, and uh, course not so much in the United States, but in Europe, songs, company songs they sing s- sing together lustily and uh, and uh, <laughs> that kind of that kind of thing
1: yeah that's that's really interesting well let's let's talk about personality theory a little bit. Uh, do you think something like the Big Five personality theory could be combined with
0: MLS to create better groups? So there I think the idea that a um, uh, a mix of people make the best group is something that has a lot of merit, okay uh, so, now, what that mix is uh, is gets a little bit complicated. It turns out I'm a big fan, of big five, and um, I think that the big five was derived really without much of an evolutionary theory. Behind I think so. It. I think so too. Good. I, I
1: Good. think it's. Uh, I think it's. Uh, it's the categories in, are in structure is built from a human perspective, but it's not built from a gene perspective and i think it's everything's miscategorized but what are your what are your thoughts
0: yeah well i mean if you know a little bit about statistics you know that it's a it's an artifact of factor analysis factor analysis is a statistical technique where you take a lot of variables and then you try to reduce them into a smaller number of factors and it's something that you can do with any cloud of data you can run it through a factor analysis and it gives you these these factors, which basically identifies the longest axis of variation and then the next longest axis of variation. And so a factor structure is, is something which is, is just a, a product of this particular kind of analysis. But uh, in the case of what actually evolves by way of individual differences, in the first place, you find a lot more context sensitivity, like take introversion and extroversion, then you know, how outgoing are are you? Well, that's going to be super context mm-hmm. sensitive. I mean, there's some people that are socially extroverted and introverted with respect to their exploration of the physical environment, for example. So you have to count phenotypic plasticity, um, um but into you, it and so on and so forth. But, uh, I mean, the bottom line is, I think that, um, that, um, the idea of adaptive um, uh, mixes is something we really want to think about, especially with respect to group performance, and then exactly what that mix is. And also whether it's like a temperamental thing, you know, like, you know, you're genetically disposed to be this particular personality type or, in fact, you're flexible um, about it, and, and what the what the mix is, um, uh, I wanted. I, I guess I feel impelled to uh, describe some research on honeybee colonies, which is really interesting. So honeybees, ultra-social insect, um, and every worker is capable of doing all the tasks, okay? The worker, the nurse, and, and all of that. So there's a number of tasks that have to be performed. Every worker is capable of performing performing all the tasks, and yet despite that there's genetic differences. There's workers that are predisposed on a day, one or the other and the reason that works well is that if everyone was truly omnipotent, equally able to do all of them, then they, they wouldn't kind of slot into their tasks as well as if some had a preference for task A, another had a preference for task B, they slot into those tasks. And then if there's a shortage of one, well then some change, okay? So a combination of genetic preferences and perhaps genetic abilities, plus the ability to switch is what works for honeybees, and I bet it works for people too, is that we have our preferences and we probably have our abilities that we're actually better at doing a than b, but if nobody's doing b we can switch and so that's a very interesting thing to to uh uh to uh, explore
1: now uh so this makes me think of of selfish individuals who you know is not good for the group dynamics but uh so this this was a comparison I was thinking about earlier today. In that, if you if you take a typical guy and you say, "Hey, do you want to be a selfish selfish jerk or do you want to have a group of friends?" He's going to say the group of friends. But uh, if selfish individuals or you know bad boys are more sexually attractive to women, and then you refuse the question and you say, "Well, you know, would you like to be a good citizen or would you like to have?" Uh, more sexual opportunities. That's a much harder question for, for guys not to be selfish. And it just seems like there's some uh, evolutionary wiring that would be difficult to overcome in, in that, in that circumstance. I'm not saying that's what every guy is thinking, but um, isn't there some pushback against everyone being, uh, I mean, obviously that, you know, there's some selfishness to everybody, but I mean, what do you think about that?
0: well, there's a number of things that you're that are covering there one point to make is that uh, is that uh, human history has always had between group conflict uh, within groups a lot of cooperation, although of course strife and and disruptive competition within groups. Uh, but then a lot of destructive competition uh, between groups. And so violence, warfare, uh, just death. So was mostly what males did. And so the idea that males are more prone to this kind of uh, behavior and that it's in their genes, you might say, that um, part of being a male, is I think there can be a degree of truth to it. And, and authors that speak to this include Richard Rangham, his book, Demonic Males. Mm. Uh, Melvin Connor has a book called Women After All, which, uh, which more or less says that women are are more cooperative. And you've really got to take that with a grain of salt because it's not the case that women are, I mean, there's, women are capable of all kinds of bad bad stuff, and, and made no mistake. And we've already talked about malleability. that We just can't essentialize, basically, uh, 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 the uh, uh, genders as if everything is genetic and this malleable component that we were, that we were uh, 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 talking about. But what do we do now with the situation in which, uh, let's say, it is the case that men, and this is true culturally in addition to genetically, what was normative and admired, in men was this more or less aggressive tendencies, which in a modern environment, is just not the right thing to do. Super not the right thing to do. And so there's a selection pressure to be more cooperative in everybody. And that is, it needs to be the selection pressure. And if you can't do that, then well, that, that's too bad for you. And and actually, uh, Richard Graham, who I just mentioned, his newest book, "The uh, The Goodness Paradox," has uh, develops this thesis. Here is the thesis, which is pretty interesting and exactly on this this point that domestication has become a really hot topic in evolution. Of course, when we think of domestication, we think of what we did to our animals and and plants. We bred them for tameness, okay? Uh, And self-domestication is breeding ourselves for tameness. And uh, other animals have self-domesticated. In some ways, you know, social life is self-domesticating. We're selecting, I mean, individuals are selecting the cooperative ones, and they're not selecting they're selecting against the disruptive ones, well in humans that took place to an extraordinary degree but part of self domestication is Rangum uh, says for the capital punishment is you know the person in your group that just could not help themselves well you'd have to exclude them or ultimately you would have to kill them and so and so capital punishment is that's you know the ultimate and in social control, and so that has to have been a part of human uh, of human history, or else we would not have become as as cooperative as we are. So, in a sense, you know, really just weeding out the bad actor is not new. It's not new at all. I mean, it's it's responsible for the way we are, but now ever more so. It's happening, not even deliberately. But if you have so many, and we get back to the workplace environment. And college, that women could be pre-adapted for. For it is true in college. Why is it that the why is it that the you know seventy percent, sometimes eighty percent, of certain majors are women, and that the sex ratio in college is now very heavily female biased? Think of all the jobs which just require you know pleasant people that just don't threatened or intimidated. They were just more pleasant to work with. Yeah. And so and there's a sense in which the male niche has become it's very sad because I think you know masculinity has to be redefined and some people are I mean there's plenty of males that are capable of, of doing that. They're totally nurturing and and uh, and uh, and cooperative and and uh, so there's lots of males that are like that. Some are not. So, and, well, know. Jordan Peterson talks about uh,
1: how society needs to do something for people with low intelligence because uh, the, the job market is just not built for them, and and be forced to same with uh, non cooperative people. Like as a society, we still have to deal with them. Is that or do we just leave them be? What are, you, what are your thoughts on that?
0: Well, I study non cooperative because I study pro-sociality and uh, when I measure pro-sociality in a population I get a bell-shaped curve and when I look at the low end of that curve those are the ones that are non-cooperators but uh, now let's ask yourself the question why are they non-cooperators? Uh, are they just like inherently non-cooperators or are they capable of cooperation but they've been forced to turn it off? Okay, so I like to ask the question, imagine that you're a cooperator, but unluckily for you, you're not in a cooperative environment. Everyone around you is not cooperating. So what are you going to do? You have these options. Number one, you can try to leave. Number two, you can try to change those around you to make them cooperators. Number three, you can defensively turn off your cooperation. Or number four, you can remain cooperative and suffer the consequences. Those are your only four options. And who would counsel someone to do option four? And so what we find is is that most of the people, not all, but most of the people on the low end of the pro-sociality bell curve have defensively turned off their uh, cooperation. And so you can actually turn them into cooperators by providing the right social environment, and we've done it. So, so there I think that when we talk about, um, you know, what do you do with the low intelligent ones? What do you do with the violent ones? You're really acting as, those, as if those people are set in stone in some sense, and to a degree that could be... Uh, uh true, but um uh, and we, we're we're left with the age old questions about malleability and and uh, mm. and uh, the social environment and and so on and so forth
1: you, Just uh curious, do you know of any studies that I've looked at um, you know does being part of a cooperative group lower testosterone?
0: I bet it does yeah uh, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, fatherhood does. We know that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I wouldn't be. I wouldn't be. Uh, I wouldn't be. Um, do we run the risk of
1: making ourselves vulnerable by breeding out selfishness out of the human uh, civilization? Uh, I mean, obviously, evolutionary. You know, evolution thought selfishness was important somewhere along the line. Uh, does it become like uh, you know delivery by C-section that we become dependent on? on C-sections and delivery?
0: Well, if you go back to the Austrian design principles, they're not just like, you know, passive principles, are they? They have to do such things with conflict resolution, graduated sanctions. I mean, basically, this is cooperation with attitude, altruism with attitude. I'm going to be altruistic, but if you're not, watch out. I'm capable of aggression of the right... Of the right kind, so there's. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, a good group has a strong immune system, and that requires punishment. They're called altruistic punishers. They love to punish, uh, in the right, uh, in the right uh, uh, context. So, I mean, there are dangers, I think, and and uh, of uh, of. Uh, too much conformity, for example. You could imagine, like what's what evidently is going on in China. I'm no expert, but just imagine mm. that everyone is, is given a, a you know a social benefit score and and uh, they're reinforced in some skinnerian manner just to do what they're told to do, and then that happens for a long time, and and then you know is that going to weed out certain kind of independent people and courageous contrarians and and so on, it could, it could happen. Uh, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's a conversation worth having. Uh, so it's been about an hour. Do
1: you have time for a couple more questions? Sure. Okay. Um, so do you think it'd be helpful if we could somehow make it so businesses were started by groups instead of individuals or, or you know, does, do businesses self select for selfish entrepreneurs?
0: Well, I'll bet if you did the study, you'd find out that most groups, most businesses are started up by groups. Um, uh, that's a prediction. And if it was started by an individual, I'll bet that individual had a lot of help. Hmm. So one point to make is then very little is done by individuals. And so uh, it's been part of the individualism, basically the way we think, that attributes much more to individuals than then is, is deserved. So, uh, and there's an economist, Mariana Mazzucato, an Italian economist who talks about entrepreneurship being something which is very much state-assisted. The idea that the private sector is the only thing that does entrepreneurship well, please. Mariana Mazzucato is here to tell you otherwise. And if you look at people like, you know, the people we idolize like Elon Musk and, Steve jobs and and people they had tremendous government assistance for what they were uh, for what they were uh, uh doing so I think that actually it's a very important and it's part of this third way uh, uh, a series to just see things clearly as to it basically takes a village to to um, to be an entrepreneur. And one one, uh, important person there is named Victor Huang. He was actually the vice president of entrepreneurship at the Kauffman Foundation, uh, recently left that position. But he has a book called The uh, Rainforest, which is uh, his metaphor for innovation ecosystems. And the book asks the question, why is it that Silicon Valley and, and other regions are so generative, um, so innovative, and uh, so many other places want to be like that, but they fail. It's, it's, uh, there's some special thing that, that takes place in these innovation zones, what is it? And it's a kind of a, uh, uh, a combination, he will say, that uh, seldom goes together of cooperation and diversity. That the people in Silicon Valley, they were super cooperative, like a hunter-gatherer, very much like a hunter-gatherer society where you were generous, basically, with, uh, with uh, your expertise and so on. You didn't expect monetary return for anything. Often entrepreneurs, they're not, they're not driven by money. They're driven by some vision of some sort or uh, another. There's a quote from that book from a lawyer who says that if you're a really good entrepreneur, you don't need a lawyer. The handshake is, is good enough. And because it's a closed enough community, then if somebody misbehaves, well, it, it becomes known. It's a small enough community. And so they just don't people avoid them after after that. Very hunter gathery But at the same time, they're very diverse and they need to be because they have to combine diverse skills in order to be an in, in order for an entrepreneur project to to uh, to uh, uh, to work, and typically, when we're highly cooperative, it's with our own kind, right? So, so the idea that it's and that's hyper cooperative and hyper diverse—that's the the unusual combination—says Victor. So, what an interesting thesis that is! But uh, and I think it falls well within the idea that entrepreneurship is is uh, inherently a cooperative endeavor and needs to become more so and needs to become more systemic the idea that you get you know a whole bunch of startups trying to carve out market niches uh to the degree that happens is part of the problem not part of the solution then you get juicers that work really well or you get amazon delivering its packages like you know by drones And and then you have all the problems of the world festering while these things happen. Well, the reason
1: I asked the question is, uh, and maybe disagree, but I notice in a lot of businesses, it's set up with a a dominant structure. And dominance is kind of built into the structure of the business. And so, and they can, because they control the paychecks to everybody underneath them. So whether it's started by an individual or a group, if the entire company is not group owned, that really makes the, the business vulnerable to dominance, and I think that would that would lessen the amount of cooper cooperability. What do you, What are your thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that I will agree with that. I think that's a slightly different question than the one I answered. Maybe yeah. it's maybe I misunderstood it the first time. But I, think uh, I,
1: I didn't ask the question very well, so.
0: Well so what we're asking is the kind of uh command and control up down corporate structure uh does it work well at the company level uh it typically works well for the executives mm-hmm. okay that that's pretty clear so these companies are run by elites and it benefits the elites but how does it work well as a as a um for the whole company, and I think the evidence is pretty speaks pretty clearly that it does not work very well. Nor should we expect it to from a from the Ostrom core design principles. It's top down, basically, and so it's not going to work well for that. Um, uh, for that reason, they're trying to. It's like it's like um, centralized centralized planning, and so. So, uh, but there's many, many uh, corporations that are not like that. So, I mean, we do have lots of examples to choose from. If you look at some of the fabled examples, like um, Toyota, of course, is one of the fabled examples. Southwest Airlines is is uh, is another. Uh, then what you find is something that's not top down. That's that's more more in tune with what we've been talking about.
1: Well, you mentioned uh, Toyota, and you talk about that in your book, and um, how the system there makes you know things more productive, make thing makes things better for the workers. But still, at the end of the day, there's still factory workers who are doing repetitive motions. Uh, you know, same thing every day. Or you know, take, think of the office worker at the his, sits as, at his desk all all day, and that's that's an, that's not really what we're built to do. Is that just something we're going to have to be forced to live with? Or is it you know? Are we just going to try to offset it by going to the gym every day? Or uh, what do you see in terms of that for the future of work?
0: Well, I think we have to. Uh... This is a matter of values, and in the current economic system, is so driven by business productivity that human welfare is sacrificed for uh, a certain kind of uh, a certain kind of uh, productivity. And if uh, it's possible that if we reflect upon our values, we can put human welfare. First and foremost, which means that you know, the nature of work should be something which doesn't force us to do these things, which are which make us measurable. Um, uh, in order to put that into action, then you have to you have to structure the arm, including the economic incentive environment, so that companies that do that are rewarded and in, in some sense, It can't put them at a competitive disadvantage. To do that, and we see that in, for example, the B Corp movement. Uh, in the B Corp movement, the, in order to get a good B score, uh, you need to score well on employee welfare. It's one of the one of the metrics, and it's at that point that the company is actually sensitive to that. So, does that place the company at a competitive disadvantage? Well, it depends. It depends on the company. The um, the customer base, and depends in part on uh, you know, regulations and and uh, and and so on, and uh, and so uh, it's a matter of, uh, for us to construct our our niches, and uh, and uh, so these things are possible, but only if we if we become, as I like to say, wise managers of evolutionary processes evolution will take place and if we don't manage it it will take us where we don't want to go I promise you that and so when you look at things like that um, um, all of the pathologies that we that we see basically that is the result of cultural evolution that's what was selected by by their their consequences and so we have to manage it in order to create these benign outcomes, but then we can. So it's actually optimistic at the end of the day that there's very little that we want that we can't actually select for. Uh, so that's why I'm actually quite an optimistic person, despite being surrounded by dysfunction.
1: Well, as we wrap up here, um, tell us a little about a little bit about pro-social. You talk about it in your book a little bit, and I'll see there's, there's a book that you co-authored called Pro-Social. Uh, tell us about that.
0: Well, that is our practical method for putting all of this into action. Uh, This year of life tells the big picture of uh, completing the Darwinian uh, revolution. But uh, uh, pro-social actually is a practical method for working with groups of all kinds in order to implement some of these principles. So if you're a group and you uh, uh, adopt pro-social with the help of a facilitator, uh, you will learn about the core design principles and you'll help incorporate them into the group. And you'll also learn some tools from um, uh, mindfulness therapy, which cause you to adapt back to the, back to the uh, agile, agile uh, uh, principles. You become more flexible and agile. So, uh, and so um, this is something which is about 10 years in development. Uh, we're developing a pretty ambitious digital platform and we're working all over the world now hundreds of facilitators and it's something definitely to check out if you're a group uh, we're beginning to enter the corporate sector that's pretty exciting work with corporations to help manage their uh, cultural evolution that's a uh, work with jonathan Haidt, who i think you know is at uh, nyu's business school and uh, um, and so, uh, lots of opportunities for businesses to uh, uh, get involved, learn about um, uh, uh, this view of business as we like to put it, how revolutionary thinking can transform the workplace and it 's not just cooperation there's many other facets so uh, we 're basically making it possible for for these ideas to spread not just um, in the um, um, academic disciplines, but uh, in uh, real world settings, including including the business world. So there's lots to check out and get involved in. Any other books or resources you'd recommend that
1: helps groups and specifically helps groups work in the workplace?
0: There's a little genre, really. So I would just invite you, you know, maybe begin with this view of life, and at the end, I say, treat this book like a portal. I cite many books. In there, they're treated as a portal for your own future um, exploration. So many books; uh, they're all fascinating. Uh, most of them are very accessible. You don't have to be a have an advanced education; just have to be a curious person. And there's opportunities for personal engagement. So what can be better than than um, uh, than that? So the two books: uh, this You of life, the big picture, pro-social is the uh more on the ground uh version and i look forward to uh to uh, working with you either personally or or through this uh uh, uh structure that uh, i'm creating with others
1: awesome dr wilson thanks again so much for being on the show i really appreciate it
0: okay well thank you for what you do